Looking at the sky, he held on with all his might, but the pull got stronger and stronger. Far below him, moonlight danced on Lake Monona's baby waves, and then he was among the night clouds, and he flew in their canyons and soared across their hills and heard their baby thunder muttering. He closed his eyes and covered his face with his hands as he moved up toward what looked like a silver island in the sky. The island had a round opening in it, dark and black. Then Danny was through the round opening. He stopped in the air, then fell to a floor. Opening his eyes, he found himself in darkness, but not absolute darkness. Moonlight sifted in the opening. A cold sorrow enveloped him. Now, here, he remembered this from before. He thought of jumping back out through the opening, but what would happen then? He went closer to it, leaned out as far as he dared. Mr. Amers! Uncle Frank, help me, please, Uncle Frank. A rustling sound. He cringed closer to the edge, wishing he dared jump through. A voice whispered soft. Hello? He could see white, a white face, loose white clothes. Help me, the form said. It was a girl. He could see that now, could hear it in her voice. Are you from Madison? she asked. Yeah, I'm Danny Callahan. I'm Caitlin Burns. I never saw anybody else here before. Me neither. Where are we? I'm not sure. Because when I come here, I remember I was here before, but then when I go home, I don't remember anymore. She lowered her head. They do stuff to me that's weird. Some kind of operations. Her eyes flashed. Yes, but this isn't a hospital. As the two children came together and held each other, they were watched by cold and careful eyes. They were like two little birds stolen from the nest, trying to find some safety where there was none. If we dive down to the lake, would that work, instead of just jumping? Dan asked Caitlin. I don't know. Maybe not. Caitlin and Dan gazed down at the shimmering, wrinkled surface of the lake. Danny could imagine Mr. Amers on the lake smoking his pipe and watching his line. What would Mr. Amers see, though? A boy falling out of the sky? Probably they'd think the splash was just a fish jumping. Then he heard the fluttering sound in the dark that meant the things were on the move. Caitlin drew close to him, but then the slowest trace of a smile flickered on her lips, and she raised her hand. In it was a match. She struck the match and in its flare something moved behind her, a green glow. As he watched, it resolved itself into the slanted shape of an insect eye, but huge. It was right behind her, just inches away. It glittered and disappeared into the shadows. And then the match burned out, and then something slid up under his shirt and slithered along his chest. He heard Caitlin gasp, heard a scream explode out of her, and screamed himself, screamed with all his voice and soul. Arms came around him, and a prick-like fire penetrated his chest, went deep, made him gag, and filled his mouth with a taste like a dead thing smells. There came a hand, extended into a faint light, as if it was meant for him to see, a long hand with fingers like naked branches, each tipped by a black curving claw. In this hand was a kitchen knife with specks of rust on the blade. The knife came down on his chest, pricking, then— as the tip of the blade ran along his abdomen, tickling. 
In the dark nearby, he heard a slicing sound, then a crack and a bubbling of breath being sucked through liquid. Then a coldness came that extended from his neck down to his groin, and he saw the handle of the knife, which was being used like a saw. As it rose and fell, a coldness grew in his chest. Then, with a sucking sound, two great white things were lifted away from him. He raised his head, looking down at himself. He saw what looked like a wet hamster curled up in the center of his chest, shivering furiously. It lay in a pool of ooze. On either side of it, things like big rubber bladders were expanding and contracting and hissing as they did so. Then stars came, millions of tiny stars all gold and green and speeding like sparks on a windy night. They surrounded the children, swirling around their bodies, swarming through the body of one child and then into the air, then through the body of the other. Again it happened and again, and each time the stars invaded the profound nakedness of their open bodies, the veins and organs glowed. The children struggled but could not rise, screamed but were ignored. The torture, terrible, somehow beautiful, went on. Halfway across the continent in Colorado, a young officer picked up a phone and called Washington. Sir, we have a glow boy hovering over Madison, Wisconsin. How long? came the tired voice of Lieutenant Colonel Michael Wilkes. Twenty-two minutes, sir. Shows no sign of moving. Wilkes glanced at his watch, pushing four in the morning. You were right to inform me, um... Lieutenant Langford, sir. Yes, thank you. He put down the phone... The spruce-sounding young lieutenant would order a jet up if the glow boy stayed very much longer. Couldn't have one of the damn things lingering over a major metro area after sunrise. He might request Eamon Glass to ask Bob about the stationary glow boy, but probably not. Bob was one of the two living greys they had acquired during an extraordinary incident in the New Mexico desert, when one of the greys' craft had crashed after it had moved into the range of powerful new radars being tested at White Sands. The Air Force had raced to the site of the crash and recovered two greys alive, one dead. Three were a triad, the equivalent of a single human being. Without their third partner to complete their decision-making process— the two that remained alive had been relatively helpless, and the capture had been a brilliant success. Unless, of course, it was instead an even more brilliant deception on the part of the Greys. You communicated with Bob and Adam via thought, or rather, Eamon, who was the only person they'd ever found who could manage it, communicated with them. But they could not find out what the Greys did with people. It was awful, though, that was certain. Dan woke up screaming. He was upside down and the covers were all over the room. He got out of bed, immediately felt incredibly thirsty and went into the bathroom and drank and drank. His mother heard him and came in behind him. You okay, Dan? Then he cried, clutching her with all his might, burying his face in her nightgown that smelled of cigarettes and gin. Hey, hey there. Mom, I had a dream. It was real bad, Mom. She went into his room with him and sat at his bedside. It was these Indians. They got us and they skinned us alive. Skinned who alive? Me, me and her. I don't know. Me and this girl. A cool hand touched his forehead. 
You dreamed you were naked with a girl, and that's a little scary, isn't it? The stars, he said. The stars. But what about the stars he could not recall? He closed his eyes, and his mother's hand on his brow comforted him, but deep inside him, down where screams begin, there was a part of him that remembered every terrible moment and would never forget. On a sour October forenoon in 2003, Lieutenant Lauren Glass watched her father's coffin being lowered. She was now alone, given that her mother had abandoned them when she was twelve, returned to Scotland, and no longer communicated. Also at the graveside were four men, none of whom she knew. They were, she assumed, members of whatever unit he was involved in. He had died on duty. She had not been told how. She had not been allowed to see his body. There had been no obituary, nothing to mark all he had done in this world, what she believed must have been a heroic life. She had been given a $5,000 death benefit, and he had been listed as killed in action. Killed how? In what action? He'd left home as usual that morning, then driven to his work, she assumed. They lived on Wrightpat in Dayton, but he commuted to Indianapolis on the days he worked, which were sporadic. As the ceremony concluded, to her amazement, a missing man formation flew overhead, wheeling majestically away toward the gray horizon. Then, down at the end of the field, an honor guard she had no idea would be there, fired twenty-one times. The highest salute. Taps were sounded. He was being buried with the highest of honors, and she felt bitter because she did not know why. The four men were walking away from the grave when she caught up with them. Can you tell me anything?